Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Mayor Yabake. And this week, we have not one, but two special episodes for you. And this is the first. So we talk in this episode to Chris Blattman, a professor at the University of Chicago and the author of a great new book called Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. This is a great interview. Uh, really grateful to Chris for taking the time to come on the pod. Uh, we we bounce from Juba to Northern Uganda, to Russia, Ukraine, to Colombia. And, and we talk about not only the book, but just generally about how war isn't as likely an outcome of conflict as, as we think it is. But we also, and this was Mike particularly fun for me, we get into a bit of his background, some of which definitely surprised me. Yeah, so we also told you last week that we'd be pairing our interview with Chris with a recap of the January 6th committee hearings. That is still coming, but it turns out there is a lot to unpack with the whole conspiracy to overturn the election and subvert American democracy. Yeah, we didn't uh, want to do that in 20 minutes. <laughs> so in order to do justice uh, to both that story and to our interview with Chris, we'll be releasing a separate episode later this week to cover the January 6th hearings. But for now, enjoy this episode featuring our interview with Chris Blattman, author of Why We Fight. Hey, Errol. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Great. How are you doing this uh, this Wednesday morning recording? We're switching it up a little bit. I, I can't even like remember that it's Wednesday, to be honest with you. But the summer has been a bit of a blur, it seems. I mean, there was the travel that we talked about ad nauseum in last episode. But I just feel like summer, when you have kids that are getting older, is just is is really cool because mm -hmm. like you get to sort of relive the the coolness that was summer before through your your kids eyes and so the five-year-old you know isla is going to summer camp and she's just having a blast like she's having a total total blast and of course this american life this week or maybe it was last week uh, re-ran an episode that was a radio show from 1998 on summer camp, which talks about this like girls camp and boys camp in Michigan in 1998 and how like intense and amazing. And like these, these kids, these like adolescents are, are just like, it's, it's such a formative experience for them. And I'm like, you know what? Summer's not all bad, you know, kind of like summer. It's like hot as shit, but you know, it's pretty great. Yeah, it is nice to have summer mean something again. Jacob, my five-year-old, is also in camp and just loving it and being exhausted. And it's it's really like legitimately cool. Yeah, like Isla came home yesterday absolutely exhausted with glitter in her hair, paint on her face, and just like living her life. It was great. This episode, we have uh, a really cool interview with someone that I um, know and, and have a, a ton of respect for, an author and academic. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Mike, what are you drinking? So uh, in honor of us recording at almost noon today, <laughs> I am drinking a high noon, peach high noon. I think peach is really uh, the king or queen of the high noon flavors. Uh, that's just a personal preference. And so uh, the nice thing about it is it's, just, it's appropriate for any time. And I'm really embracing that. Uh, I also woke up this morning, I'll say, to construction crew tearing up the street out in front of my house. So if you hear some background rumbling, just know that it's not that's that's not a side effect of the high noons. It's unrelated. Yeah, 
that's that's not your stomach. Uh, I am drinking uh, high quality H2O in a Gatorade bottle as if I were like an NFL or college football player. And I can yeah. like, you know, put it in my mouth and actually do like a, a fountain effect if, if you'd like, but really it's, it's very sporty. It's very sporty. You're wearing a lovely tie though. So um, yeah, it, you, it you goes well the, with the tie. Yeah. You, you'd be like the athlete and then also the coach getting the Gatorade dumped on top. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's like a basketball coach where they like awkwardly wear suits. <laughs> so uh, let's talk uh, about this interview. Yeah, so so Chris Blattman has been on your radar screen for a, a really long time. Do you want to just talk a, a little bit about how you first came to know about him and, and start following his work? Yeah, like a lot of people who did international development humanitarian work and like I did in the sort of mid to late 2000s uh, into the 2010s, you know, one of your first forays into like thinking critically about what we were doing in the field came from Chris Blattman's blog. And he, we sort of knew that he was an academic and we knew that he also spent a lot of time in these like tough places, Liberia, Uganda, et cetera. But it, it wasn't until this interview that I really like got the backstory for like how he got into that. And it was, it was really interesting because like similar times to when Lauren and I and our friends were hanging out in Juba, Chris was meeting his wife in Kenya and, and spending some time um, on the sort of Northern Uganda border with South Sudan and, and just like kind of traipsing around the similar places and just having a, you know, sort of a formative experience in his, in his academic career. And he talks at the start of the interview about his path and how it has unfolded. And I, I thought that that was, as someone who's relatively new to learning about Chris and his work, really just in preparation and reading the book in advance of our interview, the nonlinear path that he took to academia and to his subject matter, I think is A, really cool, and B, really enriches his perspective. And, and we can talk more about that, and you'll hear more about that come through in the interview, uh, and we, we can talk more about it afterwards as well. It's an excellent point. And I did not have on my Chris Blattman bingo, I did not have like accountant and consultants <laughs> yeah. as, as pre-careers. But let's get into the interview. We'll, let's come back after the interview and, and do a quick debrief. But without further ado, Chris Blattman. So Mike and I are really excited to have uh, Dr. Chris Blattman, who is a professor of global conflict studies at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. He's an economist, political scientist. He studies conflict, he studies peace, crime, poverty, um, and he's written a really, really interesting new book. And so I followed Chris for years back when he was blogging before blogs were cool. But uh, this book that he just wrote is not only interesting, it was a really good excuse for, for uh, me to reach out and say, hey, come on to the podcast and, and talk to us about it. So thanks, thanks for joining us, Chris. No, thanks for having me. So I want to, before we get to the book, we're going we're gonna to put a link to the book and we're going to really um, recommend that everybody who's listening goes out and buy it. It's, it's one of those surprisingly readable I don't want to scare anybody off that that Chris is a professor. Like this is a very readable book. It's you know you talk about your travels. You're you're a very accessible uh, writer. In addition to it, obviously being 
sort of very academically rigorous. But before we get to the book, you know, why did you gravitate towards studying tough places? Like, what's the origin story there? Well, one thing is I realized, I think, early on that my shtick, like the thing I was good at, there are lots of people smarter than me, but I was better at going to places where it was really, really, really logistically hard to do anything, <laughs> let alone collect data, and then go do it. One of my first jobs was chasing down like 10,000 kids that had been given a deworming medicine like 10, five or 10 years before, and I had to like go and track <laughs> them down or figure out how we're going to track them down. But, you know, the way I sort of actually kick off the book is I talk about, I wasn't really focused on, you know, that's deworming. What does that have to do with conflict? And the answer is nothing. Long story short is someone robbed me. Uh, they took my laptop. I found myself in an internet cafe in Nairobi, sitting next to a, a attractive young woman, a psychologist, who um, we started chatting because it was 10 minutes for each email to load back in 2004, <laughs> whatever it was. You, you remember those days. And you I probably do. It's probably 20 to 30 minutes per email in, in Juba at times. <laughs> if it was anywhere like where I, I followed her, she was working in northern Uganda, so not just across the border uh, from you. And I followed her there. And, uh, you know, all the things I thought were important, like children's terrible health and poverty and all these things were just so much more acute in these places afflicted by violence. And it was just so overpowering. And what, it, you know, and, and so why was it happening? And what could you do to stop it? It just sort of, it, it was seemed ignored as a question at the time and incredibly important. And like, what, what better thing to work on, right? Than something that's incredibly important and mostly ignored. And, and did you always know that you wanted to do the academic route? No, I mean, I actually started out as an accountant <laughs> I, in college. That was my initial major. I think I went in and I was gonna do business and I got hired by Deloitte too. So I was an auditor. So that was definitely, thank God I was terrible at that. Then, yeah. I, then I don't I, mean to laugh. I, I didn't want to offend any of the accountants <laughs> out there. But. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's all, you know, a lot of my friends that I went to school with are still doing it. You know, it's so great. They found something that they were like good at and enjoyed. So, you know, I was really bad at it. And then I did business consulting for a bit. And I actually learned a lot that was important in my later life in terms of doing these super logistically challenging things. And, but yeah, I sort of had this winding road that took me through three or four careers before I found the right one, which was A, academia, and B, international, and C, conflict. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you did early in your career, I, I think it was early in your career at least, was you prioritized blogging, which I don't know much about academia, but I know that it's very incentives-based and incentives-heavy. And, and as far as I understand it, there are not super strong incentives to do writing outside of quarterly journal of economics, you know, like political science journals, et cetera. And, and so, you know, why did you get into that? And, and I'm saying this is, it's a part selfish question. I mean, I followed your blog when I was early in my career and, and I know a lot of our listeners did too. And so, you know, why, why that? And, and, you know, you continued it for, for quite a while. So how did that journey mm -hmm. go? Well, it's funny when I, so in, when you're a professor, a junior professor, you have something called a third year review, which is like your whole department, all the senior people meet and they assess what your trajectory looks like. And then they give you feedback on, you know, are you headed, are you heading the right direction or not? And when I met this, so it's just like a performance review, right? And I met the, the senior faculty who was like chairing it, met with me 
And he's like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother telling you what we talked about because you won't care and you're just going to do whatever you want anyways. And that's probably the right idea. And, and of course I wanted to know nonetheless, but, but I think like that's kind of been my attitude for a long time. It's like, well, you know, I'm kind of do what I like and I'm going to be somewhat clueless as to what like the structured incentives are. And, and even if I know what they are, if I really want to do something, I'll do it anyways, which I kind of recommend to most people. And uh, because I think, I think, you know, if you're doing something you enjoy, then you do it well. And I just enjoyed that public facing uh, aspect of it. I think, you know, I didn't have access to a lot of these ideas or information. For me, the blogosphere and Twitter and is super democratizing in terms of access to higher education. We have a big problem where increasingly most academics are the children of academics. I was first generation college student. Certainly I didn't know, I don't even think I knew anybody had ever done a PhD until I was, I don't know, probably until I went to university and I had professors. Um, so, so I think blogging also gets both the ideas out there, but also sort of helps people get on that path or get interested in it. So that's, that's, that's kind of what motivates me. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll jump in uh, just about the book itself. So I really, really enjoyed the book. I'll say it's called why we fight the roots of war and the path to peace. Uh, I found your storytelling to be really compelling, particularly there were so many first person stories in there that were just really, really powerful. And I also, I thought it was really effective how you introduced a model pretty early on, which we can get into a little bit later and kind of kept coming back to it to, to relate different you know, conflicts as different as, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars and the, the run up to the Iraq invasion uh, in 2002. It almost made it read a bit like an Adam McKay movie to sort of go back and forth between the, the more technical uh, academic and the first person uh, individual personal. Uh, I'll just say that for the benefit of listeners, um, highly recommend the book. So I think it has been pretty well publicized if still debated that uh, wars have become less frequent over time. Mm -hmm. But one of your central insights in the book and throughout the book is that war has always been the exception rather than the rule. Uh, and that if you were to look at a data set of all potential conflicts throughout history, uh, the percentage that escalated into wars has always been quite small. What, what did you find were the key reasons that war has been so infrequent? And, and what do you think that says about the nature of people and societies? Yeah, well, I mean, you look at what's happening in a place like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's just horrifically costly, right? There's the lives, there's the cities, just the, there, neither one is, you know, there's the grain that's not getting out on and on and on. Right. And, and the thing that we don't see, but arguably the leaders are paying even more attention to is just the treasuries that are being drained on each side. You know, Russia is going to see like a 10% loss in its total national income, probably for a decade. That's enormous. Right. That's basically what it comes down to. War is always ridiculously costly. And this isn't even that big a war for Russia. Right. They're, they're invading a smaller neighbor. And so, so you know, what if they're what if they're facing all of NATO? This would be horrifically costly for them. And that's basically what it comes down to. Like every answer to why we fight is generally just a reason that one side or the other ignored those costs. And and the book goes through them. But yeah, I like to start off by pointing out actually those costs are so ridiculously horrible that they strive to avoid them. And if a leader forgets that, there's always some treasurer or Vizier or something, who's going to whisper, you know, sire, we can't afford that. That's this incentive not to fight. One of the things that I found fascinating about the beginning was you talked about the American Revolution, or as yeah. the Brits would call it, the War of American Rebellion. You actually paint this really different story than what we learn in school about um, George Washington in particular, about mm -hmm. how 
for him as an elite, a landed elite, it was actually more costly for him not to go to war. You know, you talk in the first part of the book about sort of like, okay, war is the exception. However, here's why we go to war. Mm-hmm. You know, here's why we fight. And then, you know, the second half of the book is is uh, about peace. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Canada. You know, I've been living in the United States for like half my life now. But Canada didn't join the revolution, right? Lots of lots of British, most British colonies did not have a violent revolution to to separate from from Britain. So 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 that's just another example of like revolution being the exception, not the rule. It so happens that the people, the founding fathers, and the and the basically the elites in the United States had more to stand from independence with Britain than the Canadian elite. So and that's that's like a common. That's sort of when I I said you know why we fight well we fight when we ignore the costs well that's one that's one of the reasons we ignore the costs is the people who decide whether or not we go to war might be thinking of just their own personal interests and not not everybody's interest even in you know what was a nascent democracy Chris just on the note you know you brought up Russia and Ukraine and I do think that reading your book one can't help but wonder how the logics of war apply to the hot and cold conflicts we see across the headlines today. And, and the ones that jumped to mind for me were obviously the, the hot war between Russia and Ukraine, and also the sort of simmering cold civil war uh, in the US. Luckily, you have written articles on both of these like within the last two or three weeks. Um, so we'll, we'll link those for listeners in the show notes as well. But on Russia and Ukraine, you know, how do you assess the path to the war that started on February 24th with the Russian invasion? Like what, what was the logic that led to fighting in that case? So the first thing I like to point out is that this whole thing about war being the exception, not the rule still holds, even in this instance, in that, I mean, it helps to remember that Russia has lots of neighbors and it has invaded very few of them. Like most great powers, it's tried to get its way and has often gotten its way through all sorts of other ulterior, sometimes threatening, but seldom invasion warlike means. Uh, so, you know, Kazakhstan's quote unquote peacekeepers or the complete subjugation of Belarus. So this is this is Russia's preferred approach. And then the second thing is they they basically, Putin tried every other means imaginable for 20 years before ultimately using invasion as a last resort. And so from dark money and propaganda, um, support for separatists just just ran through every option before ultimately invading. So it, it was a last resort because it's the most ruinous option. But in the end, they took it. And so the question's why. And the book sort of lays out five reasons that societies can ignore the costs and go to war. I think technically all five are relevant. I think four especially matter here. So the first is what I've already alluded to. The fact is that sometimes the people deciding war don't have to bear all the costs, and they might even have a private incentive. That's obviously true in any personalized dictatorship, and Russia's no exception. Putin doesn't have to bear most of the deaths and the sacrifices. He bears some. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what was, does he have a private incentive to, to, to cow and, and, and subjugate Ukraine violently if necessary? I think the answer is somewhat yes, in that I, I think a Ukrainian democracy was a potential threat to his regime, if only because Russians identify with Ukrainians maybe more than anybody else on the planet. Um, so not sh- for sure, he wasn't going to collapse if if Ukraine became more democratic, but it, it was surely a risk factor for him. So that's number one. The, the second is that sometimes we have these ethereal goals or what I call intangible incentives, some something immaterial that we get from war. Uh, so every story you've heard about Russia 
or Putin pursuing the greater glory of the nation or getting the empire back together, not because it was like in their strategic, like their material interests, but just because they have this idea of greater glory or, or, you know, coming back from past humiliations. That's a story of an intangible incentive. It's not so much that they're ignoring the costs of war, but they're actually willing to pay some costs in order to get this ethereal thing. And I think that's partly true. I think we exaggerated in the press, but I think it's surely true. The other story you hear in the press is of an isolated leader who did this by mistake with bad information, which is surely true in part. It looks like they anticipated being able to roll in mainly as sort of an intelligence operation. The army wasn't in charge and the, the military wasn't in charge in the early days. And they just thought they could decapitate the state and, and install some new, new leaders and, and maybe not face much popular resistance. And, and frankly, I still think there's a world where that could have happened. I don't think they were totally crazy. It was weird that they didn't have a plan B in case that didn't go well. And that's where there's surely some evidence that they were too optimistic. And, and that's very common. So this sort of misperception, this over-optimism, overconfidence sort of, I think, plagues a lot of leaders throughout history, especially personalized leaders, right? They, they're more likely to be insulated. And so that gets, that's our third, right? These misperceptions. But we often focus on that and then we forget a fourth, which is closely related, but maybe more important. And that's just the fundamental uncertainty of the situation, which is true in so many wars. And so that's kind of the fourth reason we often go to into conflict. So if you look back and think about how six months ago, how uncertain it was that you know Russia's military prowess, Ukrainian pluckiness and military abilities, and then Western unity and resolve. The idea that Russia would get a bad draw on all three of these things was was always within the realm of possibility, but nobody predicted that it would happen. It seemed very unlikely. And so the fact that they got it wrong, everybody got it wrong, is that a misperception or is that just the fundamental uncertainty of the situation? And the fundamental uncertainty, I think, plays a huge role. And when you have that fundamental uncertainty, uncertainty, I think war's a gamble. Your optimal strategy when things are uncertain are not just to fold against your adversary, especially if they're using that uncertainty to basically bluff. Uh, just like in poker, your optimal strategy against a potential bluff is not to fold all the time. So the fundamental uncertainty of the situation, uh, I think, really contributes to that. So that's, I think those four things in combination get us pretty far to understanding why this happened. The last one that plays a big role in why this conflict will be hard to end, but maybe it was less important why it broke out is what is that this fifth reason I talk about in the books, which is commitment problems. And this is the idea that it's hard for to it's hard for each side to trust the other to keep a deal. And I would say that the sense in which this was a reason the war broke out is suppose that Russia's strength, and Russia was strong relative to Ukraine, it had grown stronger in the last 20 years, meant that it could needed to claim something more from Ukraine than what it had. Neutrality, real autonomy for the Donbass, some degree of quiet political interference. Ukraine, a democratic Ukraine had a lot of difficulty committing to that. And so Russia could make a deal with them, but they couldn't really trust Ukraine to implement it. And so the stable deal, given how powerful Russia was, seemed to be unimplementable. And so, you know, what we're basically talking about are what they, the Minsk Accords, which is these peace agreements from, from, from seven years ago. Uh, that were never implemented because they were just so noxious in the parliament and to the to, to the to the to the populace in general, and that just meant that an alternative to war was hard to hard to find. So that's that's kind of how I put it together. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I'm I'm glad you brought up the commitment problem too because I I think it's you know Russia Ukraine conflict or the invasion of Russia into Ukraine fits I think 
really neatly into those four that you mentioned, but, but yeah. that fundamental commitment problem wasn't Vladimir Putin's problem. He was pretty yeah. committed. Uh, he had perhaps no, bad I mean, information a, and stuff. Yeah. If, I mean, if I'm going to be provocative, and I think it's important to think about it this way, is uh, I don't want to say blame the Ukrainians because I'm actually very sympathetic to their cause. I say blame the Ukrainians, and in in you talked about the American Revolution, in the same way that I would blame the Americans for the revolution, is the Americans were offered semi-sovereignty by a militarily superior superpower. And they should have accepted it, just like everybody else in the empire accepted it. And for ideological reasons, partly because of the venality and the, you know, the private interest of their leaders, but mostly out of an ideological commitment to liberty and, and independence, um, Americans said no way. And that's why the American Revolution got fought, was it this ideological intransigence of our, our forefathers. And that's what happened in Ukraine. Russia gave it, offered it sort of a semi-sovereignty, which was the deal it could realistically, Ukraine could realistically expect given its economic and military power. And for ideological and transigent reasons, Ukrainians said no way. And so they found themselves fighting. Now, I happen to agree with their ideological intransigence, and so I'm sympathetic to it. But I, I do think that's the fundamental reason for the commitment problem, that they were unwilling to accept the thing that their military power, you know, would, would allow them to maintain. So, and that's, that's, the, that's the challenge we face in looking for a negotiated settlement going ahead, is, is the West and Ukrainians justifiable, understandable, and transient about, about making some of the painful sacrifices that would be needed for real peace. I want to get to Mike's question about, are we headed towards a second civil war here in the United States? Because like you said, you've, you've talked about that too. I, I just wanted to point out one other thing I like about the book, in addition to everyone loves a good pie chart, is you, you sort of apply the model regardless of size of conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, you just talked about a war between two large countries. And you start off the book talking about street corner by street corner negotiations and conflict between Colombian gangs. When you set out to write this, did you, did you, was that your hypothesis that no matter the size and the complexity that, that you could actually fit most, if not all conflicts into these kind of certain parameters? Yeah, I mean, I think I came to that conclusion over the last five to 10 years of my work, because I don't work on countries invading other countries. I worked on ethnic groups uh, attacking one another in West Africa, or civil factions in civil wars, or criminal gangs deciding whether or not to go war against one another, um, or whether or not this village would attack that village. And recognizing that these ideas and these theories and these sorts of ways of understanding international conflict were clearly applied to these other levels, you know, which isn't totally my insight. I mean, one of the things I say about the book is it's, you know, this is, this is not the world of conflict, according to Chris Blattman. This is, here's 50 years of economics, political science, sociology, and psychology sort of boiled down into one volume with this one theoretical lens that says, hey, we shouldn't fight because it's so costly. Why do we ignore fight? Why do we ignore those costs? The, these different types of conflicts are super different, right? And that's mostly what, you know, your job as a political scientist is to do is to just sort of narrow them down and really pinpoint the differences. We learn a lot from actually trying to step back and look at these things as what they have in common. So moving back to the domestic front, you know, I think it is tempting to look at 
the deep divisions we have across society, the breakdown in communication and information sources between people who disagree politically, you know, the polarization of the parties along ideological lines, the normalization of violence as a means to achieve political ends, uh, and even the, the rhetoric right from some of these violent groups like the Oath Keepers or the Boogaloo Boys, uh, to, to think we are headed for a new civil war. Yeah. Um, what makes you confident that we are not? So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to be careful, right? You sell a lot more books and people click on your article a lot more if you say we're going to civil war. And if you <laughs> if you write something that says, hey, things aren't that bad, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the same cachet. Look, so, so I don't think nobody reasonable is saying that this is going to be the 1860s all over again in some national rupture or that the rural area is going to rise up against the urban areas. That's that's not going to happen. The thing that I think the smart people raise as a legitimate concern is say like a Northern Ireland style insurgency, something like the Troubles, where you have uh, the highly polarized society and where one group decides to start an insurgency and then the, the other side controls the government and, 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 and goes to war against that. And where the, where the big candidate for the present day insurgency, of course, white nationalists. So why don't I think that's gonna happen? So there's a few reasons. One is that this would be ridiculously costly. So everyone's gonna to strive to avoid it. I think you saw almost everybody recoil from what happened January 6th, 2020. Um, perhaps they didn't recoil as publicly and as, as, as vocally as, as we would like. Yeah, maybe a little too briefly too, you know? Yeah, that's that should be alarming. I don't want to pretend like that's not an alarming thing. That's super alarming that it, it, when it happened, this, this sort of one day insurrection, uh, when it happened, we haven't seen enough members of the Republican Party sort of walk back from that and, and, and be willing to prosecute it and say never again. It's, it's, I think they all say it in private uh, and they work to make sure it hasn't happened again, but not enough. Okay, so that's a real worry. So I don't want to say this will never happen. I, I want to say it's extremely unlikely. And I think it's extremely unlikely for a couple of reasons. The most important of which is that we're not Northern Ireland. We don't have a 50-year uh, sort of low-level insurgency behind us with a high, high level of organization of these armed groups and a high level of cohesion, which is what Ireland looked like in 1970. It, was, it so happened that the original Irish Republican Army was turning to peaceful politics and had rejected violent politics. And that's why the war had to be reignited by the provisionals, the provost, by a, a splinter group and a faction. Um, but nonetheless, there was this long-standing history of well-organized armed groups and factionalism that we don't have. Okay, so that's important. And then secondly, the, Brit the, the government side came in and did almost everything wrong, right? The British military arrives and they know more about the African colonies than they do about Belfast. They have absolutely zero intelligence networks. And when someone tosses a bomb or a stone at them, instead of finding that person and prosecuting them, they round up 30 boys from the neighborhood, beat them up, maybe somebody dies, right? And, and the, the Provo leaders used to joke that the, their best recruiter was the British Army. Uh, and then contrast that to the way that the, the government operates domestically here, where the FBI has fantastic intelligence. They usually catch these guys before they ever throw their first bomb. Uh, and then they use the justice system to target and prosecute these guys in a very legal and a very targeted way. And nobody rounds up all the Proud Boys for 30 miles 
uh, when a building gets bombed or when there's an insurrection and prosecutes them, you know, and, and is violent against them sort of uh, indiscriminately. And so our whole law enforcement structure, I think, and the way we approach this is much wiser and doesn't seem to be moving in the direction of Northern Ireland. So there are many things that make me think that this is never going to happen. And, and those are sort of chief among them. Yeah, because I, I think that's a really important point you made at the end there that for all the institutional decline uh, we have seen across various aspects of our country, the intelligence and law enforcement and security apparatus has so far, the center has held there. And, you know, in the news this week, we've got these stories of the Secret Service deleting text messages and calling some of that into question. Uh, you know, hopefully that continues. I wanted to close with a more theoretical line of questioning. So, you know, the very first section of the intro of the book is called Why Violence Matters. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what led you to put the idea of violence at the center of this work. You know, what from development background uh, oh, right. you know, le yeah. led you to, to this idea of violence as, as the thing that, that does matter more than some other you know, really important ideas? Yeah, okay, so I think there's a couple of levels on which you can answer that. Like on the one hand, like when you experience this, and I haven't actually experienced very much violence myself firsthand in the, in, in, in the sense of being the victim. But when you talk to victims, uh, somebody who's had their child abducted to be recruited into a rebel army, uh, or someone who's had their entire, uh, who's someone who's lost that child, or someone who's had their entire life go up in flames, it's really hard to care about anything else. It's just so the things that happen in the midst of conflict are just the worst things that happen on the planet and they happen on a large scale. So it's really personally and emotionally punishing for, for even, even at a distance. The second thing though, which is a little bit more academic and removed is to say that, you know, really like suppose what we care about is like a wealthy, harmonious world. And, and as we've been, we've been moving in that direction for many centuries the chief impediment to that happening right now, I think, is conflict. Most countries in the world are either rich or growing and on their way to being rich. Uh, and a stubborn minority, a large minority, and a stubborn minority are not going along with that trend. And all of them tend to be the politically unstable ones that are afflicted by conflict and the inability to get along. And, and that continued political instability and threat of conflict and conflict breaking out is the main impediment to everything, anything you care about, human rights, women's rights, children, you know, you name it, poverty, the thing standing between human society that is, you know, eradicated these things in 100 or 200 years and not is war. And, and so I think we all have to face up to that. And indeed, in some sense, if you if you're the president of any major development organization on the planet, this is something you've woken up to in the last 10 years, which is that, my God, every single place we service right now seems to be unstable and violent. And in 10 or 15 years, it's going to be even more true. It's going to be every all of them. Uh, what do I do about this? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that means, Chris, you and I have fairly stable day jobs uh, for the foreseeable future. I wanted to ask one final 
question about you, you mentioned that we've sort of been on this trajectory of wealth and I can't remember the second word you stability or, mm-hmm. or um, how much does equity and, and equality matter as part of that? Or is it a subset of one of those in your view? So I'll say two things. One is, you know, a point, you know, something I wish wasn't true, but I think is true is a stable and peaceful world does not have to be equitable that it doesn't make sense to fight even if the world is a little or a lot unequal. Now, the more equal the world, I think the more stable it is typically, but but a pretty unequal world is also pretty stable in terms of violence. So there's lots of reasons to shoot for equity and to value it, but, but peace building might not be first or second or third among them. And then thus I think it becomes somewhat like a separate, a separate objective. Hmm. Where, where what's clear is like people, people in the world just put different weight on that, especially if there's trade-offs with something like prosperity. I find myself coming down the middle, but I do, you know, I, I, the sense in which I think a more equitable world is, is, is a more peaceful one is, is, is I think there's maybe fewer grounds for tensions, right? Most tensions aren't going to result in violence. So reducing the tensions isn't going to necessarily reduce a lot of the violence, but, but, but nonetheless, a world without tensions is actually a pretty is a better world. Last question. I promise you've been super generous with your time. Sometimes I like to ask people, you know, what's sort of the tweet length takeaway uh, for, from this, but I think in your case that a tweet's not going to do your book justice. So what's your, what's your elevator pitch for the book? If I have to tweet something, I, I would go back to something I said earlier, which is if people remember one thing, it's that war is ruinous and every answer to why we fight is the reason that somebody ignores those costs. And that's a good starting point. And then it's really easy. I think we're all really good armchair psychologists. So the armchair pitch would say, well, we're all great armchair psychologists and we really easily leap in the, in the in whenever something happens, we leap to the, to the intangible incentives and the misperceptions. We leap to like the grievances and the mistakes that, that lead to violence, whether it's Putin's invasion of Ukraine or George Bush's invasion of Iraq or, or the insurrection. We're, we, we're very quick to blame these sort of human foibles and passions and and, and desires. I, I want to embrace those. Those are true. And what I want people to do is not forget the strategic reasons for war, which are these elites who have private incentives, the role of uncertainty, and this thing we discussed called commitment problems. Um, and that's why the book dwells on them. It's to say, remember the strategic roots of war, not just the psychological ones. Wise words. Uh, the book is Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Um, since we're on audio, I'm holding up the book so that everybody can see it. It's really uh, fantastic. Chris, you're a great guy. You're super smart. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on News and Brews with us. Uh, no, it's great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. All right. That was Professor Chris Blattman um, talking about his new book, Why We Fight, which we will link in the show notes. Uh, everybody should go out and get a copy. As I said in the interview, it's it's a really readable book. I mean, Mike, you're, you're not, you don't live and breathe this stuff like I do, you know, but you, you read it. What was your take? I literally don't even know how to read and I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, it's no, good. It was, I, I did really enjoy it and really enjoyed our conversation as well. You know, for me, number one is provocative, really just how applicable uh, Chris's perspective is to so many of the top stories. And like, 
you know, when, when we were planning out the interview, it was sort of a, a no brainer, right. To this, this is going to apply to the conflict we're seeing in Russia. This is going to apply to the conflict we're seeing uh, domestically in the U S but we could extend this to, you know, probably more than half of the stories we cover any given week on this show. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think for those who are just interested observers of the news, um, it, it's it's a really helpful framework that Chris introduces and extends uh, and builds out to think about. What, why did you think it was provocative? Uh, maybe evocative is a better word. Okay. Um, it it just it it really got my wheels turning as I was reading it and 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 as I was talking with Chris as well. Um, just just how directly applicable uh, so much of his thinking is. Yeah, I I agree. He had obviously thought about the Russia thing. I mean, he brought it up himself in the mm-hmm. interview, but we had obviously planned to ask him about that. But, you know, he's he's thought about that. And I think it was interesting for me how he was basically like Russia exhausted all like they were trying to avoid this conflict. They were trying to achieve their aims by any other means than conflict. And when all of those other avenues didn't work out, then they launched an invasion. One thing that I really appreciate about the book and about the interview is just how, and this is why I asked about the provocative question. Like he, he is in a way provocative. He's so provocative, I think because of how sober and decaffeinated and like not transactional, but like logical he is about things like war that are inherently violent and emotional and, you know, evocative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the book is important. I also think it's why academia writ large is important. Like you Mm -hmm. need people to take things like I'm an emotional person and I, I view things, you know, when I'm studying migrants and, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to divorce. I, I do my best to divorce sort of emotions from sober analysis, but I think academics, like, like you said in the interview, like he's created a model mm-hmm. and he like sticks to that model and keeps coming back to that model. And it's all about costs. And it's like hard to talk about people dying and being killed in terms of like costs and cost benefits. But uh, I actually think it's a, it's a really useful way to analyze these tough situations. Yeah. And, and just to expand on that point about his analytical approach, I find that so many of the thinkers I find most interesting and most evocative are multidisciplinary. Yeah. You know, we, we talked a bit about his background and how he had you know, public and private sector experience, but you, you get not only his real world perspective from that and from being in the field and doing research on the ground, but his work itself brings together, you know, international development, and psychology and game theory and behavioral economics and international relations and urban development, right? And and just all of these different subject areas. And I think for those who are just like generally and genuinely curious, it's a really excellent read. Uh, The book is Why We Fight by Chris Blattman. Uh, We will include a link that is on his website. He's still does a little bit of writing and blogging um, on his website, but uh, I think the internet has moved on from just purely blogosphere-driven traffic. And so I think he has similarly adapted, but look, this this book is great. I highly recommend it. Uh, there's lots of links 
that you can order, whether you're in the UK or the US, I'm sure they apply to, to people who are in other places as well. Should we share some spicy nuggets? Let's do some spicy nuggets. We, of course, it's our show, so we can do what we want. So as we mentioned in the intro, we, we're going to talk about January 6th later this week. We want to dedicate a whole episode to it. Mike is going down some awesome rabbit holes. Um, get excited. But as a quick teaser, I wanted my spicy nugget to be uh, January 6th themed. And we haven't done themed spicy nuggets before, but, you know, there's the first for everything. I like a lot of the internet, in fact, 15,000 plus parts of Twitter found this tweet by Meryl Marco. Uh, I don't know Meryl Marco, but Twitter's algorithms bumped her her tweet thread to me. She's, I guess, a, a graphic novelist and a, and a writer. She's following the, the hearing with the, the sort of surprise hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, who worked for Mark Meadows in the White House. And she's she's uh, showing the attempts by the AI closed captioning to write Pat Cipollone, who is a lawyer for the president. And I recommend looking at all of the screenshots, but my three favorite highlights of, again, AI trying to write in words and letters Pat Cipollone is the first one is Mr. Sip Baloney which is a really good one. Passive Loney Pat Philbin was really good. Uh, and that's, then the that's one- like, That's like uh, John Travolta trying to say Adina Menzel level. <laughs> yes. It's, it's just wonderful. And then I think the one that actually broke the internet was Patsy Baloney, which, mm-hmm. which is a really, to use your word, evocative uh, <laughs> term. Awesome. So uh, as you mentioned, I have been going down a pretty extensive rabbit hole, learning, just just sort of piecing together everything that has come out in these hearings, which has been a lot. But what I've been keeping track of as I've been going through are the six pettiest revelations from the January 6th (laughs) hearings. Uh, So I'll share those here. The first one is from the second hearing where Zoe Lofgren on the committee, uh, actually following the hearing, said that uh, the committee had evidence that members of Trump's family and inner circle had benefited personally from the fundraising he did uh, post-election that was supposedly to stop the steal. The specific example that she shared was that Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is dating Don Jr., was paid $60,000 for delivering a two and a half minute speech at the Stop the Steal rally. Nice. So that's, I mean, they had plenty of evidence that that money was being stolen. You know, just crushing Kimberly Guilfoyle with that is is really petty and, and excellent. <laughs> there was the quote from uh, John Eastman in, in the hearing after that that made its way around the internet that just has stuck with me as well that, that I think they really highlighted well, which was, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. <laughs> <laughs> There was a great um, Daily Show clip about this. When did you see this? I, I think it was maybe last night or two nights ago, where he was trying to, he was basically yelling at all of us in the crowd and everything, like, "Why are you getting so angry?" Like, you know, it was one congressman who asked for a pardon. Oh wait, two, three. 
three <laughs> congressmen who asked for pardons and it was it's only, as only uh, Trevor Noah can do. Yes, yes. So that, that was in the third hearing. In the fifth hearing, they showed the testimony from Rich Donahue, who was at DOJ, who was uh, in the room when Trump was trying to promote Jeffrey Clark, a uh, civil lawyer from DOJ, who was willing to go along with the whole conspiracy theory around the election, trying to promote him to acting attorney general. And in the meeting, after Clark starts to speak up, Rich Donahue just looks over at him and says, you're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill? <laughs> I missed that one. Yeah. Sick burn. In the, the next one, which was the Cassidy Hutchinson uh, hearing, she testified that uh, in early December, after uh, then still Attorney General William Barr gave an interview to the Associated Press saying that uh, he saw no evidence of widespread voter fraud, that Trump was so enraged that he threw his plate of food at the wall, smearing ketchup all down the wall. Um, just what what an image, right? That's that that will come back in the Prestige TV miniseries version. And and some of these members on the committee would ask these like very serious sounding questions like can you describe what it looked like when the ketchup was <laughs> falling down the wall <laughs> like yes. no no like bearing on the proceedings at all but yeah really great and then the last two are from the final hearing the eighth hearing which was last week uh the first which many people will be familiar with was the video of josh holly running away from the rioters after after doing his performative, you know, fist raise as he's walking in before in the aftermath of Biden taking office, going on his like weird masculinity redefining kick. And the thing is like, it doesn't matter at all what Josh Hawley did when he was in the building, but like, you know, he cares about this so much, like this just crushed him. And you could tell that's exactly what the committee members wanted to happen. And I'm just like deeply, deeply here for it. He had a nice stride, you know, <laughs> like he's, he's obviously not, uh, knows his way around a pair of running shoes. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, and then the final one also from the last hearing was from the video uh, in which it, it was taken on January 7th, and it was Trump rehearsing a speech uh, oh, yeah. that he was going to give, you know, condemning the prior day's attack. And there were some important things, right, in that speech that sort of go to his state of mind where, um, you know, he he didn't want to say that that those who broke the law would be punished, and he he refused to say the election is over, right, things that are relevant to the crimes that he was committing. But there was also this section where he talks about the events of yesterday and he pauses and says, yesterday is a hard word for me. <laughs> and like Ivanka, who's behind the camera, jumps in and is like, well, why don't we just just take that part out? And like it was just this, <laughs> again, not really material at all to the facts of the case, but gives a, a real window for us into uh, who this guy is and uh and and was was just just delicious amazing q q beatles and boys to men okay more to come on january 6th i can't wait for mike's rabbit holes join us later this week we're gonna have another special episode 
Again, thanks to Chris Blattman for for joining us today. Really interesting book, really interesting uh, interview. So thanks, thanks to him for making the time. And Mike, see you later this week. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yamakang. Our guest today was Chris Blattman. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Wednesday, July 27th, 2022 at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for listening.